Welcome to a special bonus episode of The Way of Love. I'm Sandy Milian, and I'm here with Kyle Oliver. Thanks, Sandy. Well, if you caught episode two of the last season, which was our show on the practice Learn, then you probably were just as enamored as we were with the passion and sense of humor of our friend Patricia Lyons. That's right. We had a lot of fun talking to Patricia, so we wanted to give you the chance to hear a lightly edited version of our full conversation, which was hilarious and often very moving. Absolutely. It was also fairly long, so just be advised that this bonus will be quite a bit longer than a normal episode. (laughs) Still, we think it'll fly by. Enjoy. Today, our guest is Patricia Lyons, Reverend Patricia Lyons. Can you introduce yourself, tell us who you are, and all the amazing things you do? Like you said, my name is Patricia Lyons, and I live and serve at Virginia Theological Seminary with Evangelism Initiatives. For about 20 years, I was a lay chaplain at an Episcopal high school as a day job, and that's the work that got me into thinking about culture and how the church can speak to communities of people outside the church, because most of the teenagers I worked with would describe themselves as outside the church. I sort of wish that everyone in the church had to spend a couple of months or a year standing in front of a group of teenagers talking about faith, (laughs) which you learn about yourself and about God and about the world to see how innately spiritual everyone is, and certainly teenagers, how creative and imaginative they are. And and rather than being kind of jaded and angsty or whatever we think about teenagers and religion, I, I just find them to be some of the most hungry people who are authentic and acting out that hunger for for God. I mean, Augustine says, we, we are restless until we rest in God, and teenagers are restless. And I felt like every day I had to live up to the challenge of the depth of their longing for truth. And they're not anti-church, that they feel the church is anti-them in some ways, or that mm. institutions are just speaking a foreign language. Uh, so they're just, they're happy to go elsewhere. But on the whole, it was sort of pulled out of me. My faith in terms that were not jargon my faith in terms that were not institutional. They don't speak that language. So you literally aren't even answering their questions if you uh, continue to speak in a language that's germane to church and to institution. And I had a longing to sort of meet them where they were. So I really had to learn to speak their language, which is really just Pentecost, right? The church began with an act of God helping us in a miraculous way to speak Phrygian and Cretan and all the other languages of the people who showed up around a group of Galileans who then said, my gosh, I can't believe, aren't these all Galileans? How are they all speaking in our language? So the church began with a miraculous event of learning to speak the languages around us. And yet, I don't know what you guys feel like, but I often feel like the church is on some kind of mission to have the world understand us, Mm. that our our prayers are about maybe one day the world will understand us. How do we get the world to understand us? And that's just, that just was not the physics of the Pentecost story. That's that's not what happened. What happened is God helped the church listen to what other people say and what terms they have and the stakes of their lives in, in language. So we don't we don't always get that miracle. Now we've got to really do it uh, on our own. We've got to learn those languages on our own because the Pentecost showed us what needs to be done. And now it's really up to us to figure out how to do it. Can you give an example of a way you might be tempted to sort of express something in those kind of institutional terms and then how you might try expressing that in a, in a sort of different pattern of, of speaking? Sure. Adults, I think, often have, I know I have at times, we tend to, when we communicate with young people about faith, we can fall into turning Christianity into kind of a moral system, 
of right and wrong. And quite often the, the questions that teenagers have are just not moral questions per se. They're about meaning. Uh, they're not about things like sin or redemption. They want to talk about freedom. And, and quite often we want to talk about religious practice, like something mm-hmm. like prayer or worship, you know, words that just, they don't have a lot of resonance. I mean, those, those words are in rap songs. They're in a lot of contemporary music for sure. But I find that where I would hit a wall with teenagers is when I wanted them to understand a belief that really mattered to me. And I would start to use words like prayer or church, hymns, Bible verses. And I always found that we connected in, in authentic sharing, that they, they knew that those words really mattered to me and the most mature teenagers could appreciate that and then share their own terms about music and intimacy or loneliness or habits as opposed to like practices. I started trying to find words that they were using that that is what I meant by spiritual practices. I started to find myself, and this is where I feel like the soul you save may be your own (laughs) when you try (laughs) to reach out to to young people, is that I was hiding behind some of those words. What do I mean when I say I pray? Mm -hmm. Because young people, many of them don't know how to pray. No one has ever prayed with them. And increasingly, they've never been around anyone who's prayed in person. So when I just say, you know, there are times I just feel like I need to talk to God, then their eyes kind of open up like, well, what, what's that like? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm a traditionalist in many ways in my own faith, and, and I'm not at all saying that the church should stop using words like prayer or worship. But I know for me, this is what I meant when I said everyone should have to do a rotation with teenagers and talk about their faith in a mostly secular setting is because it, I found it very liberating to drop the words myself and say, well, what do I mean when I say worship? Because teenagers look at you in the face and say, what do you mean worship God? I mean, what, what is that? To them, that sounds like a kind of bondage almost. And it makes me say, well, what do I mean by that? And then I just talk about gratefulness, that sometimes I just don't know what to do with the gratefulness I have for health or education or meaningful relationships. And that's just my gratefulness is just exploding. And there's no thank you note that can be written and no, no present that can be given to a God who's already given everything. And, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm evangelizing myself as I step away from some of the more formal words. And those words are important. We do have a tradition. And if we walk away from a word like prayer, we also walk away from centuries of wisdom about it. But I think there's something to be said for at least looking at those words myself <laughs> and what I mean when I say that. So that when I come back and use the word prayer, the person cannot, and now they know what I mean, because I know what I mean. But I've had to take this little walk away from the, the jargon to get to that place. Yeah. Was trying to speak their language and, you know, meet them where they are. Was that what drew you to using something you like in pop culture, like Harry Potter, for example, the the series trying to speak their language? Was that what drew you to that? Yeah. I mean, that's actually a a great story. While I was a chaplain in a high school, it was going to be a homecoming week just, just a few years ago, actually. I missed the whole Harry Potter phenomenon when it happened. I missed the first book. A friend even gave it to me that a friend had mailed it to her from England before it was even published here. So I literally have no excuse. I mean, I had the British (laughs) version before Americans even had uh, the Sorcerer's Stone. So I had the Philosopher's Stone. I didn't read it, didn't read the second. Then the third came out. I was already like a thousand pages behind. Then the first movie came out and all the book snobs were like, don't watch the movie till you've seen the books. And so then I didn't watch the first movie and the second came out. You know, so people are lining up and, you know, selling their firstborn to get these books. And I felt totally out of it. And so I just like put my head in the sand and never read a book or watched a movie to the end of a series. Mm. 
So it was like 2010, 2012, and I just had missed it and I was kind of out of it. So I tried to pretend I knew about it. And anyway, finally, my high school had a homecoming week. And then I heard that that year, the theme was going to be Harry Potter. And I thought, this is a nightmare. These Harry Potter people need to drop this. <laughs> the books are done. The movies are done. I mean, come Get on. Get over it. <laughs> this is a disaster. But you know, uh. you, you probably both can imagine this and anyone listening to this podcast. I walked into school that Monday of homecoming week and they had decorated the whole building to be Hogwarts. It was the most Ooh. elaborate decorating I'd ever seen. The whole school must have come and helped decorate. It said, welcome to Hogwarts, and for, which by the way, I'd never heard that word before. I mean, and I <laughs> say, if, if you haven't, I was like, that sounds a lot like a sexually transmitted infection, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, that's how out of it I was in the terminology. This is just a couple years ago. <laughs> oh. And then I walked through the school and it was decorated like a cathedral. And you usually spend all week, if you're a teacher, giving people detention for ripping down decorations. There were kids that brought their own scotch tape all week so that if a decoration fell, they could put it up themselves. Hmm. They wanted the building to be Hogwarts for a week. Ninth graders, 12th graders, black, white kids who were on scholarship, athletes, people were talking to each other who never talked to each other, teachers who nobody even liked were even nice that week. Everybody <laughs> had wands. Everybody was in a house. More people came to pick up Quidditch, which I couldn't even spell, on Thursday for an optional Quidditch thing at lunch, then came to the mandatory pep rally. Hmm. And the dance was a ball. I, I'd never seen so much fabric with teenagers. And the lights were on. Because everyone wanted to see each other. And they went in groups from their houses, not just with dates. I, I called my mother, who had been a teacher for 50 years, and just declared that night, I said, Mom, Harry Potter took on homecoming and won. <laughs> I had never seen such universal or near universal embracing of a narrative of meaning. Mm. And it made them better people. I've seen there's lots of research now and across Europe on reading Harry Potter and its effects on the brain. And, and there's some pretty good research right now, qualitative and quantitative, that, that, that there's a noticeable uptick in, in people's awareness and, and care of social justice who just read the stories. And I saw it. I mean, was there cheating that week? And were people, you know, fooling around and drinking the bathrooms? Probably, but I know there was less because the narrative took over a community. And kids were literally grieving the next week that it wasn't Harry Potter week anymore. Mm -hmm. So what that taught me is that there are languages, and that one in particular, that are so powerful and so spiritual, and they're not morally neutral. They are good. They're about beauty and friendship and, and wholeness and courage. I just missed it. I, so that night after Homecoming, the next day, I watched all eight films, sort of a <laughs> self-imposed marathon because the school had Monday off to celebrate homecoming wins in athletics. So I literally watched about 25 hours of the movies, read the book straight through because I knew I'd missed a language of faith and commitment and identity. And I wanted to catch up. So I thought, tell people, I'm like the patron saint of people who missed the Harry Potter thing. It is not too late. I came later than anyone I've met besides people who haven't read it at all. But if you care about the soul and you see people's souls speaking and embracing and seeing themselves be better people, becoming more fully who they are, Neville or Luna Lovegood um, or Harry Potter for that matter. When you see that, it's unmistakable. And that to me was the Pentecost moment. That was a language I didn't realize how many hundreds of millions of people are fluent in. And I wanted to get fluent in it. And ever since then, when I work with any age group, done Harry Potter and Christianity events, 
at a retirement home for elementary school, vacation Bible school, adult forum, any age group, any kind of rich, poor, all of it. And it is amazing to see people show up with their tattered page Harry Potter books and say they want to be buried with them or they want their first line tattooed on their arm. And I've learned to talk about resurrection and the resurrection stone. You know, I've learned to talk about faith and and Harry's wand breaking and having him carry the pieces around his neck for the entire series. Hope beyond hope that somehow something broken could be healed uh, as it is in the books in the end that the wand that was broken that he carried with him over his heart is put back together. I mean, they're just, we'd need a hundred podcasts to come up with all of the intentional themes written into the story by an Anglican, J.K. Rowling, who who chose her own baptism when she was 11. She, she picked the church at 11 years old. And and it's clear when you read her story that, that she's on a mission. And at the end of it, she admitted she was, that it wasn't Narnia. She didn't want it to be that one-to-one, but that she did say that there really is one great story of love and redemption that we find in God and Jesus Christ. And she decided to tell it. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, other than the impact it had on the students that Homecoming Weekend, did it have a, a personal impact after you read the books and you watched the films? Did it have a personal connection? Did it create a personal connection to you, for you? Yeah, it did. Um, I remember where I was sitting and the page I was reading from the third book, Prisoner of Azkaban, where we learn about the Patronus charm. I was still only reading the series the first time through to try to understand how it changed a high school one week. So I'll be completely honest. I really hadn't, I wasn't really reading it to myself. I was, I was looking for the the footnote for what I had seen. (laughs) It was very external, frankly. I was looking for an explanation of a phenomenon. I wasn't looking for my own faith at that point, but I, I read that these dementors are these dark forces that suck the joy out of you, that they're not alive, um, but they suck life. And I remember just freezing as I read this description of what a Dementor does and what this Patronus charm does, which just, for those of you that don't know the story, go read it. But for right now, I'll say that you have to have a memory of love. You can't just wave a wand and say some words. You actually, in your heart, you have to have a memory of love and it mm-hmm. fills you up. And that's what creates the power that comes through the wand. And that's what repels. You can't kill a Dementor because it's not alive. It's sort of a sign of evil itself that we have to sort of keep it at bay until Christ comes and ends this drama. And as I read what a Dementor is and, and how you fight it, I just froze and, and, and frankly had a very personal memory of being 18 and going into uh, my father's hospital room and he was dying. And I had a few minutes with him. I was at college for about a month and had come home because he was dying. And a few minutes after I uh, left him on this visit and I got home and I was told that he had died just after I left. So I turned around with my mom and went back to the hospital and I couldn't believe a few minutes had just passed and I was back in the hospital again, and he, but he, he was dead. And to try to make sense of it, I just went back to his hospital room, just thinking I just want to sit in this empty room and just try to figure out what has happened in the last few minutes. And it was a VA hospital. And I went in and he was actually still there, uh, which I didn't expect. Mm. He literally was, he, not only had he died, but he just, his arms were hanging off the side of the bed and his mouth was open and eyes were open. And I was just terrified. And that description that J.K. Rowling gives of what a Dementor does to you was exactly how it felt. Mm-hmm. That all, every joy I'd ever felt, every good th- feeling or image I'd ever felt was just being sucked out of me. And I, I thought I was just going to die and choke and suffocate. And all I remember was hearing words come out of my mouth. I feel like I didn't choose them. I just started to say, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty 
creator mm. of heaven and earth. And it was this like out of body experience to hear myself just re reciting the creed. <laughs> I wasn't a particularly wow. religious person, um, but these words just, just came to me and I just kept repeating them as like a mantra. And I started to breathe and the room kind of got larger what it felt like. And I went over and picked up his hands and closed his eyes and sort of put him back together. And I had found this peace and, and not thought much about that moment uh, for years after. And there I was reading this passage of Harry Potter and this language, which was so not religious, explaining what death is and what it does to us as humans. And the truth is the creed was my Patronus charm. It was this memory that God created the world and that God is in what is seen and unseen. And this great pursuit of humanity through Christ and the Holy Spirit, I just kept reciting this memory and literally pushed the Dementors out of the room and brought light and oxygen and hope back into the room. To this day, that description of meeting a Dementor and casting it away is the best description of what happened to me in that room. I literally called friends and said, I have an understanding of the worst day of my life that I've never had before. And it showed me the way God speaks through culture and art and narrative and epic story in, in ways that the scripture just can't, in ways the scripture can touch people at the time it was written that it can't touch me now. Likewise, mm -hmm. I can't imagine a Dementor story to someone in the first century. But just to trust in, in the Anglican spirituality that we have in the Episcopal Church, that, that we have more than one source of revelation in the sacraments. And if, if sacraments can communicate with us, so can the material world from which they are offered. And that page, I mean, I have that page marked in that book because that was my moment of saying culture isn't just one way to communicate the gospel. There are times when God will pick up something like a story and speak to us with such incarnate love and reality that there's really nothing like it in our traditional religious experience. So Harry Potter to me is, 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 is sacred. Not that that means it's absolutely true or I believe in magic. But for me, it was just like bread or wine that was brought up to the altar one day and just a common loaf of bread became a source of abundant life. So Trisha, it's tempting to come to this conversation with this kind of metaphor of the cultural artifact, in this case, the, the sort of grand narrative of Harry Potter, to come to it thinking of it as like a lens <laughs> And the lens pointing at something else, i.e. faith. And I, I think in the way I'm hearing you talk about this, that's not the metaphor you're using. And I wonder if you might sort of think about how you would sort of express for folks kind of the relationship between the quote-unquote pop culture content and the quote-unquote faith content and, and how we sort of think about each of them and how do we hold them in tension? Is, is this question making sense? Yeah. I just finished writing a book about evangelism called What is Evangelism? And one of the chapters in that book is called There Is No Public Square. And in it, I express my strong belief that we take too seriously the distinction between church and world or that there's a public square that is somehow secular and there's a, a church that is somehow religious or holy and that we leave one to visit or, or to save the other. I think our language can also reflect that, that there are things that are holy and things that are profane. And so we have culture, pop culture, and we talk about that as sort of a, a space distinct from church. 
Hmm. And, and I have just found, and again, teenagers helped me do this, that those distinctions represent a tradition like Christianity trying to work out its relationship to empire and political power. And, but it's really not helpful and it's not true. I mean, if we think of the creation story, that, that the Holy Spirit breathes across the whole of creation, there's no public square in the first chapters of Genesis. There's no place where the, the Spirit of God isn't breathing and moving. Now, as Christians, we, we believe that God is everywhere. We're not pantheists that, that everywhere is God. But this, this idea that we can participate as co-creators and, and help the world realize more and more and become, in Rowan Williams' language, to become more aware of the presence of God still moving across the earth and moving through our soul. So if your question is, you know, how do we help people communicate that, that God can be found and known and one can grow in your faith in and through pop, pop culture? I'm a little uncomfortable with that because I feel like we're already seeding a part of human life that is somehow waiting for God to arrive or waiting for God to be brought to it. Yeah, yeah. I think we do that in a, in a tradition that, that became the empire and became a, a building and we started making cathedrals, which are gorgeous and and most of the time do their job of making you look up and look out and and see that there that there's a beauty that's just envelops you. So on the other hand, we can reach a point where the edifices have become so beautiful that we lose the ability to stand in a field. And some people are better at this than others, that that that, that is a cathedral for them. And of course, in the 21st century, the, the churches has so much anxiety and scarcity about that these buildings are really becoming almost a burden to us, which I, I like to think that that's the Holy Spirit helping us to, to realize we have to learn to look out and look up places beyond the building as they crumble and our resources to, it, it becomes indefensible to, to, even if we have the resources to spend them on things like that in a post-institutional reality. For me, the, it's, it's, it's not really a Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or different incredible dramatic series that we see on cable television, whatever people's binge is. I think we need to start having a more Anglican expectation, which is that we will find the gospel in these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we should expect that. Not only do we not arrive with it, which is really just a colonial framework to begin with, but that we should expect to meet it's something like the Hunger Games, which often gets thrown out with Harry Potter. Like, well, why don't we have a vacation Bible school next year on the Hunger Games? Because that's also popular. I want to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Dystopian story like that. It's not exactly a resurrection <laughs> narrative. On the other hand, <laughs> though I wouldn't do it for a VBS, that's for sure. Um, a, a book study would be great because absolutely sacrificial love and truth and the gospel is in that story, e- even if it's the enemy of the actual story itself. So anyway, I, I think that there's, there's a way in which I love talking about God in pop culture and using pop culture in a way to, to talk to other people. It, for me, it's not that instrumental. I believe God is, is in that, that there's not a place in creation where the Holy Spirit is not hovering as at the beginning of our time. And I think we've lost the imagination for that. And that puts an incredible burden on someone's imagination to believe that they are bringing the good news as if it is new news. I've been so liberated in my life in the last few years realizing that to be an evangelist means I simply show up in a space with an expectation that God is there, that that's what an evangelist is, someone who's completely convinced that God is present, which doesn't justify wherever you are, right? 
you don't walk up into a situation of oppression and say, this is of God. But in the oppression you walk into, which in America would be culture, basically a white supremacist culture, I don't blame God for that, but I walk into it and say, where is God calling and healing and reconciling and rebuking in this situation? And I'm not the one bringing that. I'm just the one who's looking for it and wants to join with it. One of the practices I think we can relate to this is the practice of learn. And, and this one's about studying scripture. And while we study scripture, understanding more and more about God and the role of God in our lives. And I'm just wondering how biblical do you get? Have you gotten? Can you get through this approach of using pop culture or Harry Potter? Maybe some examples that you've, you can think of. One of the things that's hard about why most people, you know, sign up for Rosetta Stone and don't actually wind up learning French or Spanish or whatever is because <laughs> it takes a lot of work. Developing fluency in a language just takes a commitment and a change, in many cases, a rule of life. And the truth is, wanting to be able to communicate with other people fluently in their cultural framework, something like Harry Potter or Star Wars or whatever, means you have to spend a lot of time. I read a lot of Harry Potter <laughs> and to, just to, to know more about these characters. Because then you meet a teenager that says the, the person that kept them from being a cutter and taking their own life is Luna Lovegood. Now, all of a sudden, I got to say, I want to know everything about Luna Lovegood. What are you mm -hmm. saying to me when you say that? Mm -hmm. um, that you were able to get through transitions uh, surgery when you realize you were a trans person because of Neville Longbottom. Like all of a sudden, I want to walk away from that beautiful life and go find out more about Neville Longbottom. So th there's a way in which when people are honest with you, you, you want to become fluent, but it means you have to go read and read a lot and read things you don't necessarily like. I've read a lot of fan fiction that is just weird to me, but I, <laughs> I have this passion to understand. I mean, if you like the Wycliffe Bible translators in past centuries, they would go off to faraway lands and they, they would, in order just to translate the Bible into that language, they would live among those people. Sometimes we didn't even have a written language for mm -hmm. decades just to be able to write one of the gospels out for them in their own tongue and know their own metaphors and, and images and colloquialism so that they could communicate. So I think of myself as like a Wycliffe Bible translator. <laughs> um, I mean, I know that was a problematic era. That was a kind of manifest destiny, colonial religion for sure. But that idea though, that you would go live with people for 30 years so that you could tell them the first chapter of John in their own words and images. So it's, it's hard work to do that. And so for learn, for me, it means I have to know the scriptures better and better. And I have to know the language in which the people are living and where the stakes are high for them. So I love that learn is a practice because it's a reminder that you know, there's a discipline. I mean, there's a reason the word discipline comes from discipulus in Latin, right? A student. So discipline doesn't just mean obedience or rigor. It just means you have to be a student of the gospel. And that takes time. So being able to communicate with other people means I have to go further and further into understanding the scriptures. Harry Potter, by the way, is pretty easy because there are two Bible verses in the Harry Potter books. So mm -hmm. that's a nice way to, to be using the practice of learn with students is the first question you could ask people is, did you notice that there's two Bible verses in the last book? written on graves, right? So on Dumbledore's grave is the verse, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which is a great description of Dumbledore and a great description of being a seeker. And then on James and Lily Potter's grave from Corinthians, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Hmm. And JK Rowling said that she picked those two verses because they summed up for her the whole of the Christian faith, that we're all seekers. Wow. So seek a treasure that will form you into a person of goodness. 
And remember that as you seek, that death has lost its sting, that it, it, it was an enemy and it has been defeated. That's what frees you to be a seeker. So, I mean, she literally just kind of summed up for her the, the faith in two verses. So that gets people who are Harry Potter fans. Most of them just forget that there were Bible verses in the Godfrey's <laughs> Hallow graveyard. Yeah. And by the way, in our lectionary, if you didn't know this, if you go to Ash Wednesday, the reading for Ash Wednesday, the gospel is that of Matthew where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in year B in our lectionary, the uh, New Testament lesson on Easter Sunday is the last enemy to be defeated is death. J.K. Rowling was not familiar with the common lectionary. <laughs> I've done research on that. I can tell you that for a fact. But it is interesting that the two verses she chooses actually frame our understanding of the season of Lent in preparation for the yeah. resurrection, that there's something to be said for those. But anyway, Lord of the Rings doesn't have particular Bible verses in it, for example. But oh my gosh, there are some elfish phrases that are pretty darn close because Tolkien mm. is also up to something as a Catholic in those stories. So anyway, learn, learn to me is, is a dual call. It's a call to authentically show someone that you are willing to do the work to learn their language, whether it's knitting or the 12 step program or whatever mm. it is where you've stepped out of traditional church to meet people where they are in the journey and you show them, I will learn and you will watch me sweat blood and tears and not quit like we do with languages and flashcards often. And it, it drives you back to your own faith saying, what is it I'm trying to communicate? What does it say again in the Gospel of Matthew? What does the Eucharistic prayer mean again? That Christ is our hope and glory. And then when you read that, then it, you think of the images of the story you're communicating. You think, oh, that's what we can say about Ron Weasley. And it just goes back. I just feel that it's this this endless depth that I find on both sides of the equation. So rather than, than a lens, it's more of an interface mm -hmm. between these two intermixed worlds and you're just kind of swimming swimming at that interface, is that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the country, you know, you've, you've probably seen the pictures of the globe from space, right? And mm -hmm. you see continents and you don't see lines for West Virginia or New Mexico you just see the land and, and the topography. So you see what's real, but you just don't see the particular borders that we've drawn. And I think that there's a way in which pop culture, secular culture, the public square, these are all lines that if you looked at our lives from space, from God's perspective, would not exist. There is creation and there is a God who has, C.S. Lewis likes to say, invaded it. I would simply say is incarnate in it. And so we, we've actually created these little neighborhoods that sometimes are helpful and sometimes are not. And I think the Christian has to think that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And we need to look often when we get up in the morning at our room that we're waking up in and the floor or dorm or cell or base or home that we live in and, and look around and just say, God is calling, God is present in word and in sacrament. Because people said to Jesus, you know, where's the kingdoms? And Jesus said, well, some of you say it's over there and some of you say it's over here. But I say the kingdom of God is, is within you. And that's when all the lines of states and borders fall apart. We have the baptismal covenant saying that we will seek and serve the Christ in all people. And I think it's important to rem remember it. the reason we take a vow to that is because Christ is in all people. That's why we're vowing to not miss it. <laughs> we're not vowing to put Christ in all people. That would be a different baptismal covenant. And we've behaved that way badly about evangelism for centuries, but we are actually not yeah. swearing to put Christ everywhere. We are swearing yeah. to recognize Christ everywhere. 
it's not a heuristic. It's a, it's a response to a reality. We've got to just erase in some ways, some of the lines that have been drawn and just not obey them playfully step over the borders of culture and being a part of the body of Christ. Let the buildings be what they are, you know, a temporary shelter, kind of like the the tent that was over the ark that people knew was never the final resting place of the ark of the covenant and the 10 commandments. So they knew that they were wandering, but once we became the religion of the empire, we, we just don't act like wanderers anymore. And the result is we've drawn some lines that are really becoming more like fences for our imagination. So Patricia, in all the communities uh, and pastorals you've been, uh, and I'm sure it's been with it, a lot of young people and young adults, what are they teaching you about the future of faith? God is insistent on our becoming aware that we are loved. This is what I think Bishop Michael Curry has been He's both a symbol, like with the word S, he's a symbol of the church in the world. And he's also a symbol with the word C. He's, he has a loud, gorgeous <laughs> announcement. Yes. So he is both symbol and symbol of the truth that God loves unconditionally and longs to reconcile everyone and everything in creation with God, that we would live together as in the Trinity, in a perfect community of liberation and love. So... I follow his lead on that message. <laughs> and what young people have really taught me, and people of any age really, is that the longing they have has the shape of the grace that God gives. We are designed for a loving and liberating relationship with God. Mm. I think we've become shy to say that because we, mm. with generations and centuries of conquest and crusade and colonialism, uh, we are rightly chastened by Christian history. But I truly have seen in the longing of young people, this desire for the people of God to not give up on calling themselves the people of God and not give up on the fact that we have taken vows, that we believe the tomb was empty, historically, physically, <laughs> actually, as they would say, empty, and that we can live in a pluralist community, society, nation, globe, and that we serve our neighbor best by being authentic and honest if Christ has changed our life, and that we've got to find ways to say that that are not patriarchal and all of the isms. And we've got to find a way to use an I statement and declare how Christ has changed our life. So that's what young people have given me hope for. They've given me hope that they want to hear a testimony, not one that is safe, inoffensive. It might be offensive, it might not be. And there are things we can do to make it less offensive by not being imperial about it. But oh my gosh, be passionate. Like when I talk with the person to whom I'm married, I, I usually don't worry about not offending people. I want them to know how in love I am, how marriage is changing my life Literally, I'm being redeemed by God through the love of marriage. I want young people to hear me talk about marriage the way I talk about God and vice versa. So I'm incredibly hopeful that the audience for a person who's been changed by Jesus Christ is everyone. Our audience has never been bigger. We have what's called the loneliness epidemic in America right now. If you, if you read any of the literature, sociology, psychology, anthropology, a literal loneliness epidemic that is being labeled that's the root cause of our health, our financial debt problems, and I totally believe that. But in the face of a loneliness epidemic, my goodness, this, I don't want to call that an opportunity for the gospel. It is a cry for it. Are we going to meet a loneliness epidemic with an epic honesty 
and evangelism, which is not extroversion. Introverts out there, I see you. I see you, introverts. <laughs> um, and I apologize that the Episcopal Church, like many others, has equated extroversion with evangelism. That is wrong. Mm. It's one version. I wouldn't be on this podcast if I wasn't the extreme version of extroversion as evangelism. <laughs> on the other hand, that makes this into a personality type and and everyone else um, should feel ashamed or inadequate. You can be in a room and if you are in the presence of God and Christ is in you, you are being an evangelist. You are light and salt and leaven by being a person in a situation who is being redeemed at every minute in the second, as the second person of the triune life. That's what everyone is sitting, a baptized person. You are in the community of the triune God before you open your mouth with your silly words about it all. <laughs> so everyone is an evangelist who gives their life over to Christ. But there's a longing in the world now that needs every single one of us who is that to be that. I worry greatly about the patterns of power and institution in our church. If we can meet that longing, it is a completely open and existential question for me, whether or not the institutional faith that we practice um, can get outside of itself and get beyond our scarcity as our numbers dwindle and membership patterns change and tithing habits are fading. And while all that's happening and the buildings, metaphorical and actual, are, are crumbling, I, I just, I pray that that's my great concern, not for the gospel, which will, the, the rocks will cry out, but for the institutional church. Can it meet being who she is? Can it meet this moment and the amount of change and humility and innovation that's going to be needed to learn the languages of the 21st century? I'm cheering. Hey, we're doing a podcast. So, you know, <laughs> Lots of good things are happening that weren't happening five years ago or 10 years ago, but we have got to learn some pretty new and radical languages that will make Phrygian and Cretan and, and Greek seem easy to learn. If we can't learn those things, uh, I think of the, the story of, of Philip going to the eunuch. Remember, he's on the chariot and Philip winds up going up next to him and the eunuch wants to learn about the scriptures. And then he just says to Philip, like, how, how would I know these things if you don't teach me? It's just a beautiful story of a seeker saying, look, man, I've heard the gospel is a pretty cool thing. So start talking. I want to hear. And what do the scriptures say? And if you don't teach me, how will I know? So I don't know why God has put us on the workforce to communicate the gospel. I think it's a terrible idea. I don't even answer my emails. I can't believe I've been invited to share the gospel with the world. But we've got to, for some reason, we've been asked to spread the message to a world that is dying for it, as are we. I mean, I'm dying for it too. It's not like I'm, I'm done dying for it. I... I die for it every day. When I get off this podcast, because you guys have been so cool, I'll probably say some prayers I wouldn't have said. Because hanging around people who are people of God, I think, fires up the magnet in us to want to get closer to that Christ life. So for you, Tricia, I want to go back to what you said about the young people you know being really sort of open to this. I want to hear something real. I want to hear some, whether they call it testimony or, or something else. I want to hear something real from you. I think the three of us all know that that's easier said than done. What's a good question for me to ask myself if I want to share something real? Hmm. Did it actually happen? That's, that's the question I've gotten from a lot of young people. Like, I, you know, I talk about praying and I felt better. And they look at me right in the face and say, did you really feel better? Hmm. Or I say, you know, so I tell the story of my father, like I told you, and I, I felt peace. And then, you know, a young person will say, did you really feel it? And what does peace feel like? And what they're really saying is, did this really happen? 
I'm reminded what a challenge it is with all of the posting and tweeting that we can do. We really, the, the ability to sort of create a person that we want to be is very real. And in that sense, again, young people will lead us, as Jesus said, to a place of authenticity. So I could have a post. There are days I have posted a wonderful thing about something I did that day, but I also like had the flu and felt awful. And a week later, I'll be telling people how awful I felt last week. And they'll say, but I saw that post on Facebook. And I want to say, oh, yeah, well, I didn't say everything that happened that day. <laughs> I just said the really <laughs> great thing that happened to church that day. Now, that's not lying, but it's a reminder of how close we move with the ability to create digital persona that we really start saying things that may or may not have happened, whether we mean to or not, or giving impressions. So the invitation to present ourselves is an invitation to, to pretense, unlike has ever been possible before. So I think the young people in, in my life who don't hate religion, they don't even go to church. Their parents didn't. Eat. They're the children of Gen Xers. I mean, no one's been to church. They don't even know anybody who's been to church. And this is like a common suburb of a major city. I live just outside Washington, D.C. Yeah. One year I was showing Jesus Christ Superstar in an introductory mm -hmm. class on, on religion. And a, a junior who wound up being a National Merit Scholar was going to have to miss the last day of the week we were showing the movie because she had a lacrosse tournament. And she came to me Thursday afternoon and just said, can I get this movie online? She'd never heard of Jesus Christ Superstar. And I said, well, of course. Yeah, because I'm going to miss it tomorrow. And she's just like this Anglo-Saxon, you know, you'd probably describe her as like a wasp lacrosse playing, whatever. And she looked at me right in the face, I kid you not, and said, I want to see how it ends. Hmm. And I thought she meant Jesus Christ Superstar. But what she meant was the story of Jesus. And then she went off to some Ivy League school and... Now is probably a young adult, maybe in her early 30s. But I was there at 18 when she had a word that I don't usually associate with the gospel, suspense. And I thought, the church, does the church have any idea? Does her, do her parents have any idea? Who I'm sure check some box like Presbyterian or Catholic, whatever, on some census form. But she's never been. And literally stayed up on Thursday before she left for her lacrosse tournament to see how the story of Jesus ended. So there's a part of me when I hear that, and, and, and one more, I, a dear friend of mine from college called me crying in her 30s because her seven-year-old daughter, she was reading her bedtime stories and she decided to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a book from her childhood. And she got halfway through the beginning of it and her daughter, really smart, she was already in some Chinese immersion private school or something, and looks it up her and says, what's the daughter of Eve? And my college friend just said, well, what do you mean? And then her daughter said, who's Eve? Sure. And, and my college friend called me that night after she put her daughter to bed weeping, knowing that I'm her Jesus friend from college, and just said, <laughs> how did this happen? I was married in a cathedral. My father was on a vestry. It didn't occur to me until tonight. I haven't done religion yet with them. And she's weeping because yeah. she knows she was confirmed and everything. To have her daughter look at her and say, who is Eve? And I feel like that's the world we're in right now. It's not anti-religious. It's no idea. Do we know that? Are we in spaces where people who are that disconnected can even talk to us about Jesus? Do we just go to the dog park until our dog either goes to the bathroom or gets hot and then we leave? Or do we just walk in the dog park and say, it's not whether or not I'm going to talk about Jesus. It's just, God, I'm here. Use me, please. I see 20 people or two mm -hmm. people, many of whom don't know who Eve is and haven't been to church. And you, 
Christ, you have given me my abundant life forever with you. So just use me, even if I just sit here and pray for all these people and don't speak at all. But that's where we have to go. I mean, because there are some people who, who you might think would have some idea of, of religion. And, and as you all know, who do pop culture work, there are people who have no idea. Well, Trisha, thank you so much for joining us on The Way of Love. And we'll look forward to hearing people's Harry Potter stories and testimonies and, and their stories of finding God in maybe in places where, where they didn't expect. Thank you so much. It's been a gift to spend some time with both of you. 